a new Christian. Some might call him a seeker because his heart and his viewpoints are still forming. I'd call him a believer. His heart is for Jesus and his mind and his heart have been radically changed since his atheist days not many years ago. He's among one of the first generations of Christian converts who encounter their new faith first through explorations on the internet. So from the very word go, this is a man who can see that Christians disagree about the Bible. You can't go on the internet and research Christianity without finding that fact out. And as he started to visit churches, he saw the same thing. All Christians in every denomination or tradition say they want to read the Bible faithfully and accurately. And those who get into Bible study often look to collecting Bible study tools in order to help them be certain of the right interpretation. I don't think that's wrong. I think that your heart and where it's focused is what's most important, but it's good to stock your mind with conceptual tools, like seeing the Bible as one story, or like seeing the Bible from the perspective of the ancient writers and readers. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I'm interviewing Dr. Mike Heiser, who spent a lot of time trying to put himself in the ancient sandals of the biblical writers and the first readers of the Bible. I asked him some questions about how the ancient writers challenged the worldviews of their time and how and when they reflect those worldviews. I also got to sit down with some friends, other academic editors at Lexham Press to talk over Heiser's insights. I'm Mark Ward, host of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Let's jump right over to my talk with Mike Heiser. The Bible Study Magazine podcast is brought to you by Bible Study Magazine, delivering tools and methods for Bible study from respected scholars and church leaders. Right now, start a free trial. Get six months of fresh insights on achieving greater Bible literacy. Visit BibleStudyMagazine.com slash trial today. Mike Heiser, welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. You tell us really quick because we want to get to content. <laughs> Who are you and what do you do and what are you about to do? Yeah, well, for, for the last 14 years, I've been, well, academic editor was my first title, but I never really edited anything. Uh, scholar in residence actually more or less described what I have done to this point and here even in the Life. early days here at Faith Life. Yeah. So I, I've basically written reference content in the early days. I supervised data projects that involved scholars from all over the world creating things for us and for our users. Um, I think that's probably the, the the quickest way to describe what I do. I, I create content. Usually that's in the form of a book, but not always. You know, mobile ed, I was in on the floor of mobile ed uh, to help create that thing. Uh, so we've done a lot of video, but it's really content creation. So your major book is The Unseen Realm, mm -hmm. and that came out not all that long ago, and you've gotten a lot of feedback on it. And one of the, the, the reason we wanted to talk to you on the BSM podcast, mm -hmm. the theme of which this first season is biblical literacy, is that you have spent a lot of time thinking about the ancient worldview of the biblical writers and how that ought to impact our interpretation today of the Bible. So you wrote, the biblical text was produced by men who lived in the ancient Near East between the second millennium BC and the first century AD. And to understand how they thought, 
we need to tap into the intellectual output of that world. A vast amount of that material is available to us thanks to modern technology. You said, as our understanding of the worldview of the biblical writers grows, so does our understanding of what they intended to say. So I wanted to ask you, what role should this ancient worldview of the biblical writers play in a beginner's personal Bible study? Mm -hmm. I, I would say as much as it possibly can. You know, I, I tend to operate along very simple uh, assumptions, very, I think, self-evident assumptions. If we wrote something today, if I wrote, you know, an opinion piece about whatever or something about myself or something that was, you know, connected to my life and times, I would want people a thousand years from now to know about my times, to know about me, to know what people were thinking, what I was thinking, what, what, what environment was I a product of? Because only by knowing those things will you even get close to understanding what I was trying to say to my audience at that time. And that's all I'm, I'm arguing for, really, fundamentally, in Unseen Realm and with the, the whole ancient worldview thing. Uh, it's something as obvious as the biblical writers are not us. They don't think like we do. And it's high time that we sort of get alerted to this self-evident reality and ask ourselves questions like, wow, you know, maybe if, you know, is it coherent to think that if I were able to sort of have the Israelite or the first century Jew living in my head, that I might look at scripture differently because they were who they were. They're writing to people who were like them. They're not us and they're not writing to us. Yes, they're writing for our benefit. All scripture is, is for our benefit. But at the end of the day, they had their own worldview. They had their own audience. And so a, a simple shift like that, just recognizing who they are and that God in his providence picked them at that time in their circumstance, with their worldview, in their time of life, to produce this thing we call the Bible, it just makes sense to read it through their eyes and the eyes and ears, of course, of their audience. I've heard this sometimes referred to as the scandal of particularity, like God chose this very particular set of historical circumstances through mm -hmm. which to reveal himself. And he used history, especially through the death and resurrection of his son, to reveal himself. I mean, I've always heard my entire life growing up in churches that I ought to put myself in the sandals mm -hmm. of the biblical writers, and especially those who were receiving this. How is your work different from what I have always heard? I mean, I think it is. I've, I've mm -hmm. dug into it. You tell me. I think I, I give worldview a lot more stage time than things like artifacts. Uh, things like, you know, focusing on who were the political players of the first century? Who were the political, who were the empires, you know, the ancient year? Well, I mean, that, that's all relevant in some way. But I think what's more relevant is just how these people thought about the spiritual world, the supernatural world, how they thought about themselves, how they thought about their place in this world, their relationship to these to the spiritual reality. This is where we get into religion. This is where we get into worldview. This is where we get into intellectual framework. And I think that kind of stuff has been avoided uh, in an evangelical context because it feels kind of scary. That, oh, you know, the biblical writer might have been influenced by something, you know, that the, an ancient Egyptian believed. Well, yeah. And, and the reason is not because one is handing down information to the other. It's not that they're passing their religious books around and copying off each other. The reason is a lot more obvious. 
they, they live geographically in the same region. They have trade with each other. They have conversations. They, you know, they, they, they go to war. I mean, they, people interact. I mean, what could be more obvious than this? And, and, and they, again, are all part of the same time and place. So yeah, a lot of what the outside world thought, the biblical writers are thinking too, in terms of both, this is a shared worldview element, but also reacting to it. You know, making a theological statement that's contrary, again, being part of that discussion. I think that one of the biggest early steps in biblical literacy, and I want to see if you agree with this and could comment on it, is the mere realization that the Bible itself was revealed by God over a long period of history mm -hmm. in different, though, you know, concentrated geographic locales. Uh, and to people who themselves are influenced by different cultures, um, rather than being dropped out of heaven in 1611 yeah, see, or whatever the, the year might be. That is such a big deal. You know, I, I think if we could get away, you know, I believe in inspiration and I, I'm a, I'm a secularly trained and a, and a seminary trained scholar, but I'm one who still is comfortable with a word like inerrancy. Yeah, I know we have to frame it. Everybody has their own definition. I, I get it. Inerrancy meaning that nothing, everything the Bible affirms right. is true. Right. It, it, the, the propositions of scripture are true. So, you know, I'm comfortable with that, but, but typically what happens is the way we're taught to think about scripture is like it's a channeled document, you know. Some to use a, a paranormal you know, word from the uh, from the paranormal community, like like some external force seized the writer and their mind goes blank. And they, sometimes you know, they, called the dictation the theory dictation, of inspiration. Yeah, you know, the channeling is a little more harsh of a term, but for our for our postmodern culture, I, th I think it's a good term because they do believe that about certain things. You know, if we can get away from that and and have what I think is is a far better view, a providential view of inspiration, because then God is not just engaged when he zaps people or possesses people for a few seconds or a few minutes or whatever. God is engaged all the time, you know, th throughout, you know, the you know centuries, millennia. He is engaged. He, he's he has providentially overseen the lives of every hand that will ever touch scripture from the time they're born to the specific occasion. Exactly. Everything. God has been in the background, like a, running like a computer program, preparing them for the moment that he wants them to write something down and preserve it for posterity for the believing community. I mean, God, I think that view just honors who people are. It honors God's decisions, and it also has God being engaged at every step along the way. And it honors the evident nature of all of the biblical writings. You yep. can see the different personalities and bents. Right. And, and, they, and they have the their emotions. own agendas. An agenda is not a bad word. They have their own purpose. Believe it or not, the biblical writers had a purpose when they wrote something down. Again, we, you know, I think in large part, People who would read like a, a book like Unseen Realm or, or get introduced to again the comparative method, um, they 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 comparing they wonder, the ancient comparing, right, right, worldviews well, with right comparing the ancient worldviews with with what we see in Scripture and and realizing that oh the biblical writers were part of the same world look at that and again not assuming that everybody's just copying off each other and parroting the same ideas because they're not I mean what the Bible they're says challenging is challenging ancient worldviews right there's polemic there is there are shared worldview things but what they do you know when they think those thoughts at the, the places where they enter the conversation and what they try to challenge you know, to, to elevate Yahweh above all gods, you know, so on and so forth. And, and they do that in a lot of ways. That's important. You know, but again, if we could get away from this notion 
of the Bible being a channeled document, because what that means is that everything that God downloads into the brain of the writer must be unique and new. No, it's really not. It's still part of that world, but the meanings and the significances of what the biblical writer churns out, you know, are not just, again, parroting what you could find in some other text, but they're there at that time and place, and God has prepared them to contribute at whatever occasion it might be. It's not that everything is just brand new, popped into this guy's head. Now he, you know, his, it just comes out somehow. No, he, he's part of this community and God knows it. God picked that person knowing what he's getting. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, mm-hmm. Paul says. Yep. What I most appreciate about your work, and I first experienced it when you gave a talk at Faith Life around the release of Unseen Realm, is your eagerness to tackle and I would say synthesize a bunch of passages that have been sort of easy to gloss over. Mm-hmm. And if a if a newbie picks up the Bible, he's going to get to one at least by Genesis 6. Mm-hmm. He's going to see stuff <laughs> earlier than that too. But at yeah. the very beginning there, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And I, I really just hadn't ha- heard anyone try to you, put them together. You use these an important odd passages. Word. Like I say a lot on interviews, the dirty little secret of Unseen Realm is that none of the content of the book is original to Mike. Mike doesn't have any independent original thoughts. Uh, you know, and I even had to rein myself in when it came to footnotes. I mean, I've, I've collected thousands of sources on every, every content element in Unseen Realm over the last 20 years. I don't have to make up anything. It's all there, again, in, in peer-reviewed academic literature. So, But what I do is I do synthesize. I and don't, popularize. Right. And, and, and I, I don't really know why. It's just I see patterns. I, I, see, I see data points and their connections. And again, I can't explain it. It's nothing I've tried to develop. I'd love to sit here and say, oh, I'm just so smart. I figured this out. I didn't figure anything out. I just see things this way. And, and, you know, just try to, try to make it a coherent whole. Now, I am guided by the assumption that behind Scripture is, is a great single mind. You know, we call that mind the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, God is behind the whole thing. And so it needs to be coherent. It's not random. It's not disconnected. Everything, you know, even the weird stuff, it all has a contribution to make God to the had whole. an agenda exactly. in inspiring it. Exactly. So, so I am guided by that assumption. I think it's a coherent assumption. I think it's eminently defensible. Uh, it arises from intelligence. You know, we, we don't create things that, that just intentionally are random and disconnected and, and, you know, gibberish, you know, gobbledygook. No, we, we have a purpose for what we're trying to do when we try to communicate to someone. And so it's a fair assumption, and, and I'm guided by that, but I, I just don't, again, it's, it's providence. Providence is a big deal with me. I, I just see things this way and try to connect the dots and then, like you said, try to, try to, make, it, you know, try to make it comprehensible to the person who's not going to go out and get a degree. So let's talk to that person who's not going to go out and get a degree, somebody who wants to be biblically literate. Mm-hmm. They come to Genesis 6, they come to Isaiah 14, they come to numerous passages that to our modern American or Western or just modern sure. around the world ears sounds odd. We're not sure what to do with it. How often would you tell a person like that? You know what? It's really okay. Save that for later. You need to get the bigger picture mm-hmm. and then come back and examine this detail. And And when would you tell them, no, dig in, try to figure yeah, out what's I, going I, on. I, I would be prone to to sort of 
you know, say that the getting the lay of the land is more important because once you have a framework, you know, once you've sort of built the, the outer rim of the matrix or the puzzle, you'll be able to see how things interconnect a little more efficiently. Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm hoping that, that people have mentors, uh, you know, pastors and whoever uh, contributing to their thinking that are reminding them, look, you know, this is, this is a product of the ancient world, a product of the ancient mind. That was God's choice, you know, to pick these people who lived at this time place. And this is the way they looked at the world. God knows what he's getting. So to, to, to have that look sort of lurking in the background of the person's mind, but, you know, you don't have to jump into the most esoteric, you know, element of this, you know, build the framework first. And that, that's actually what Unseen Realm is. Unseen Realm is not a theory of everything. Um, that would take another couple books, you know, to, to actually sort of approximate something like that. Unseen realm is the beginning point. It is, it's giving people the lay of the land. And what I mean by that is if you could, if you read unseen realm and I know people that have read it half a dozen times, if you have the framework, that framework in your head, you will be able to start to read scripture and the dots will start to connect for you. You will see things differently than you, than you had before. And you'll have a, you'll have somewhere to sort of place them in, in approximation to something else. And that's a process that that takes a long time, you know, to, to try to piece together, but I think it's important. So, you know, you got to have the foundation first, but, but, but once it's in place, once you're starting to build that, sure, you know, drill down. And, and again, hopefully, you know, about resources, you have a good mentor um, and, you know, you're not going to get it. I mean, I don't, I don't have it, you know, in my head. Okay. I mean, I learn stuff every week. You know, that, that I'll, I'll read something in scripture or I'll read a, a journal article. It's like, okay, there's another little piece. And, and again, I, I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I sort of know where that falls. I know how to probe it to see whether it should go there or not. What are its weaknesses? You know, what are the outliers and all that sort of stuff? But this is a work in progress, as Bible study should be. You know, what, what else? I mean, if, if you could master it all in a year, boy, you'd get bored, you know? Yeah, yeah. Only in the eschaton, only in the last, when we are glorified, will we know even right. as also we are known. Yeah, then we'll now run we out of questions. <laughs> right. There's a lot of buzz today about interpreting the Bible through the lenses provided by ancient Near Eastern texts outside the Bible. And Mike Heiser is one of the people who has helped create that buzz. If you want to hear Heiser's views on biblical interpretation in greater detail, and if you want wisdom for other aspects of Bible interpretation, check out the mobile ed course BI 101, Introducing Biblical Interpretation. For my part, I think we have to be careful not to act as if those texts influence the Bible in any ways that cast doubt on its truthfulness. And Heiser agrees. I also think we have to be careful not to act as if those ancient texts are clearer than the Bible and, and that the Bible is the unclear document that needs light from the ancient East in order to become truly visible. But I also want to make sure I get all the wisdom I can from all the good sources out there. And there is simply no doubt that the ancient cultural context is relevant to Bible interpretation. If I treat Abram as a modern Westerner, I am going to misunderstand him. Heiser touches on a lot more than cultural backgrounds in his course, BI 101. The subtitle of the course is Contexts and Resources, and he dives into resources for Bible study, including books and commentaries, as well as all the major and minor literary genres of scripture, and even literary devices. These are absolutely essential concepts for careful Bible reading. He also talks about a topic near and dear to me, word study 
providing important cautions to interpreters and helps for them to achieve interpretive accuracy. BI 101 Introducing Biblical Interpretation is available at Logos.com. See, I think it's really helpful for, for me to hear Mike Heiser say several times now, talk to a mentor, particularly a pastor, because you say, seeing the Bible through the eyes of an ancient reader requires shedding the filters of our traditions and presumptions. They processed life in supernatural terms, that is, the biblical writers. Today's Christian process it, processes it by a mixture of creedal statements and modern rationalism. Mm-hmm. I want to help you recover the supernatural worldview of the biblical writers, the people who produced the Bible. So I wanted to ask, how often should a beginning Bible student, while reading a passage, default to the interpretation of his or her pastor? And how often should they try to keep such, quote-unquote, tradition out of their minds and attempt to read the text mm-hmm. afresh? Yeah, I, I think we should always have in our minds that these people were not us. They were not the people who articulate our traditions. That doesn't mean that we shut the traditions off. It means that we realize out of the gate that, you know, that tradition I have, they, they may have hit, hit this point right on the head. It, it may be exactly, you know, what an ancient person was thinking. May, maybe the ancient person would articulate it a little bit differently, but, but this is a winner. They hit a winner here. But also realizing that the, the, the tradition may, you know, be a little bit misguided. There may be a, a point of, you know, dissonance here. And also to keep in mind what traditions like creedal statements are. They're meant to be distillations. They're not, to be, they're not meant to be comprehensive overviews of, of anything. You know, they're, they're, they're neat, uh, careful distillations of important points of truth. And so by and large, you know, you're going to have agreement. I mean, I'm a normal Trinitarian you know, Christian guy, you know, I don't, I don't really have any, you know, strange beliefs. I mean, I could subscribe to all the major statements, you know, and all that sort of thing. But the way I get there might be completely different than, again, the way somebody else would. And along the way, if, if I know that an argument is not going to hold water, even in defense of a really good idea, I will say so. Sometimes that makes me unpopular. Like, your argument's just garbage, you know. And I'm telling you that because I know that you're going to be out on the internet someday or you're going to watch YouTube someday and you're going to have this argument in your head and then you're going to watch it destroyed in front of your eyes. You know, So you shouldn't give up the faith when that happens. I'll, I'll give you something better for that or, or help you. You know, If, if, you're, if you have the, the ancient writer in mind, it just changes the way you think about a number of things. That's actually better, but it's not going to lead you to, you know, well, well, I thought the gospel was A and Mike says it's B. No, it's nothing like that. It's just there's a richness to Scripture. There's an internal coherence to it. Again, you will see the data points. We have, we have Christians that have lots of data points in their heads, and that's good. You know, that, that's what Bible study is supposed to do. What the problem is, is they don't know how to connect them. They don't have a framework for connecting them. And so sometimes creeds can get you some of that, uh, but by definition, because of what they are, they leave lots of outliers. So we need to sort of keep these things in balance. One of the other episodes that we're planning for the Bible Study Magazine podcast is one about redemptive history and the importance of understanding the one story of Scripture. I haven't heard you mention that. That is the major framework that was uh, that constituted the biggest leap forward for my own biblical mm-hmm. understanding after mm-hmm. you know twenty plus years of Christian education, someone finally put the pieces together for me by showing me the big picture. Mm-hmm. I've seen problems with that. I've seen how you can let the big picture override the details, mm-hmm. um, but largely that's still 
I look back to that as the benchmark, you know, advance in my Bible study. How does redemptive history play into Unseen Realm, Supernatural, mm-hmm. your emphasis on the framework? Yeah, I, Unseen Realm is going to have a lot more nuts and bolts to it. So I think if you really want to get a, a, a feel for the flow, you would do two things. Uh, you would you would read Supernatural. It's just a little bit easier in that regard. And I just came out with a a, a book you know, that I, I self-published, but it's going to appear in, in Logos as a Logos edition uh, version of the book called What Does God Want?, and that is designed for, again, seekers, unchurched people. And it really answers that question, like, what, what's the whole point of this? And the way I answer that and tie it into redemptive history is that God, you know, n- not because of any deficiency on his own, God wanted a human family and is determined to have one. At the end of the day, God will get what he wants. The Lord will, the Lord will win. The Lord will have his way. And so scripture becomes the story of God's, you know, impulse to have a family on earth, an embodied human family. A people for his name. A people for his name. And so there's lots of things that go wrong with that. God never gives up on plan A. He never creates a plan B. Uh, He never gives up on his original intention, his desire. He has created human beings to be like himself. So he's committed himself to allow humans to be able to make uncoerced decisions, but he's big enough to get his way in the end, and he will. So that there's a, there's a meta narrative over there of how God is trying to, you know, I shouldn't say trying, is God ultimately he's succeeding, but incrementally, God is never giving up on his wish, his desire to have a human family, and Scripture is the record, is the story of how God is continually trying to work the plan and moving the pieces, and again, never goal. giving up. Yeah, you used the big word meta narrative, mm-hmm. and you could have just used that small word you then used story. Yeah, story meta narrative is just the big story. Yeah. yeah, I I see how you're putting that together. And actually, as you say that, I'm thinking I'm doing some work right now in Jonathan Edwards, and he wrote this book called The Dissertation Concerning the End or Goal or Telos mm-hmm. for which God created the world. You're talking about the very same themes, yeah. and I actually had in my notes a question about Edwards. <laughs> so you go back to Augustine or Calvin or Edwards, they lacked a great deal of the access to the ancient yeah. material that we now have. So did they also therefore lack some of our ability to interpret the Bible accurately? How do you deal with historical theology? Yeah, I, I would say if you mean by abil- if you mean intellect by ability, the answer is certainly no. No, I mean, they the, had the, great. These intellect. people are a lot smarter than we are. Um, if it's access to material that can help them frame what you know the content of Scripture in any number of places, the answer would be yes. You know, we we have a lot more of that, so the the onus is on us because we have more data to do something useful with it. Uh, if they'd be alive today and have access to this data, they would put us to shame. Okay, there, I, there's no question in my mind about that. But they're not here. Um, and so, you know, we, we're the generation and succeeding generations who are tasked with, with being responsible for this. Uh, at the same time, again, because not everything in Scripture is sort of a, a, a you know, a trail that leads nowhere without, you know, being an ancient person. I mean, there are things that that you can get from the story that are that are quite clear, and the interrelationships there. And I think they do a really good job. Just as a sidebar, I think that the church fathers, generally, the especially the the older ones, are in our culture going to become more useful, because I I look at the culture as becoming increasingly more pagan, and what that means is. 
we're going to be fighting the same fights as they did at the turn of the first century and the second century. And so how they handled certain questions will be really important. Uh, so they should not be neglected, but they should just be understood for here's, here's who they were. Here's the time and the, and, the, and the data that they had at their disposal. Here's what they did with it. Here's, you know, here are the questions they were trying to address. And so tap into them for what they were able to produce for their time and the reasons they were producing it. Um, you know, we can do that with any era, but we are, I, I would say, on the other side of the coin is we are more responsible now because we have more data and we, we should awaken to the fact that there's a lot that needs to be done to rethink, you know, scripture on any number of levels in, in this method, again, to just return to the simple thought, they are not us, you know, we are not them. Uh, maybe maybe this the stuff that seems so weird and sort of random and how this is put together, even, you know, from a macro level across the Bible or even within a book, why does this section inter, you know, intrude? Why is this chapter here when it doesn't look like it should be? It just gets in the way. I mean, everything about Scripture has an internal coherence. And the content of what's in Scripture, again, emerges out of a certain worldview and a way of thinking that is not us. And so we ought to we ought to, to really make an effort again to try to have them in our heads. Yeah, I I hear a tension in what you're saying that I think is a healthy one. That I think is a very very much Reformational Protestant tension. Mm -hmm. That okay, you you heard it here, folks. That Mike Kaiser does not dismiss historical theology. <laughs> right. He actually recommended the use of the uh, church fathers and said that Calvin and Augustine and Edwards were smarter right. than Mike they Kaiser, are, which is a smart thing smarter. to say. Okay, well, it's a true thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so I'm not writing the institutes. You know, when I'm 29. Or, right. You know, oh just, man, I'm, I'm it's not incredible. Doing that. But, okay, so there's one part of the tension. And the other part of it I hear you saying is dig in. There's new stuff to find. There's there's this framework that you are, you know, making more clear to people through your work. You're, in a sense, magnifying your office as Paul did. Um, you think you see things that maybe weren't seen quite as clearly in the past. That Again, there's the tension without dismissing the past. Um the sola scriptura and, um, you know, always reforming, semper reformanda impulse of the Reformation is something mm -hmm. I hear there. And it's very much part of the lifeblood of Faith Life, Logos Bible Software. We are always and have been, through, in part through your work, handing out tools to people to have them do deeper and deeper Bible study. We're confident that what they'll find there, by God's grace, using these tools that we've helped create, um, is coherent and is going to have substantial continuity with what mm -hmm. they read in historical theology. You said you accept them, you know, major assessments of that yeah. out there. I don't have any reason not to. But there's more stuff to see, and Bible study is worth it. And actually, I remember hearing um, a missionary lady who was, I don't know where in the world she was, I have no idea who she was, but a teacher of mine used this illustration several times. Turns out she wasn't reading her Bible. She was in her 50s or 60s or mm -hmm. something. And she said, I've already read it. I know what happens. You know, I kind of don't need to read it again. <laughs> and at that time, hearing that as a college student, I got a little afraid, like, oh man, you know, I'm reading it a lot now because I'm still seeing new things, but is that going to dry up? And I would say the absolute reverse has happened. Oh, yeah. The more I yeah. read it, the more I understand, the more I get help from others, the more I see. And the richer it is to me personally through my experience as a Christian and through my study. So I don't I, I think that tension is a healthy one. Yeah, the, the the whole the whole church father and creedal thing, you know, is to to me it, it's it's an issue of perspective. None of these guys 
had everything right. Again, that's again, it's a self-evident truth. They're they're humans. Surprise, okay. They, they, none of them get everything right. They're all affected by the circumstances of their own lives, which is going to direct how they think theologically and what they produce theologically. They're going to they're aiming at something, okay. They can't aim at everything. They're aiming at something though, and so we ought to know that about them. We ought to know their context too, and then mine what they do for the questions they address, because chances are really good that it's going to be good stuff. Uh, we, we're just engaged in the same enterprise. You know, again, we have different questions in our day and age. We have different tools. We have different things that, that need to be addressed. Um, you know, yes, there's going to be some tension, some dissonance, you know, between where we land at a given place and where our reformer might have landed. So what? Guess what? That's never going to go away. You know, it's always been that way. It's always going to be that way because we're all it's it's all a work in progress. So you would be foolish to jettison, you know, the the material that has gone before. At least you know, taking a serious look at it, uh, where it's it's useful for again the, the context that you're in. Again, trying to do you know biblical exegesis, trying to answer specific questions, address specific problems. You would be foolish not to tap into them. And again, uh, my, my prediction, and I am no prophet or a son of a prophet, but as the world continues toward, you know, down the road toward paganization, these, these people are going to be really useful. There is a prediction from Mike Heiser about the future. <laughs> I think it's a pretty safe one though, Mike. Yeah. Now I'm a writer, I'm behind you in output, and I've got some, you've got some years on me here. We're <laughs> willing, I'd like to put out some more stuff as time passes. Um, but one thing I found as a writer and uh, something of a controversialist, at least in one book that I wrote, is that I I hardly ever get this amazing gift that I really thought and kind of assumed I would, a critic who actually listened <laughs> and then came back with stuff I hadn't right. thought of before, rather than introducing as supposedly new arguments that I answered very directly in what I wrote. That's been actually a prayer of mine. I want that. And um, I will actually go scrabbling in the dirt of what some critics will say to look for the kernel mm-hmm. of valuable criticism. And I wonder if you've done that, you know. You know, I, I would answer that in two ways. One, you know, you're, you're sort of, you know, academic critics. I, I, I can honestly say to date that I don't think they've they've thrown a you know anything at me that that dents the book or the positions I take in the book or just the things I ask people to think about in the book. On the on the flip side of that, I've had lay people do that for me, just because they ask good questions. Um, in other words, they don't have turf to defend; they just want to know something. And so, I I over the years I have changed my opinion on on different things. You know, probably you know three, four, or five things, something like that. And and invariably, it has emerged from a conversation that may not even have been about that thing, but they'll say something, and again, I'll I'll, I'll just take that nugget away and go, okay, that's a really significant thing. You know, it, it has the ring of truth to it. So then I'll go I'll go pursue it, and sure enough, that'll cause something to shift. It'll 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 take its its rightful place again in building the matrix and that kind of thing and that'll that that'll create a shift over here. It'll answer a question over there, but I, I've had that happen you know a number of times. So it's not like a, a critic. Um, it, it's just An someone question right who who just it, they're thinking well, you know they're thinking carefully. That's a gift. It it is, and so I I tend to look for. I tend to gravitate toward toward people like that. That you can tell to to me the degrees are incidental. You can tell if you're in a conversation 
with someone who's just winging it or someone who is really a good thinker. And they might have a problem because they they don't have access to some data or they don't have enough under their belt yet. But the question they ask is really a perceptive one. So this is another argument for biblical literacy. That is, here is a credentialed scholar Mm -hmm. who's produced output that has been peer-reviewed and accepted and praised and done popularization work, which shows a level of responsibility that takes some real dedication. And yet the people that he's saying he has learned from and that have caused adjustments in Mm -hmm. his thinking were thoughtful lay people who didn't have those credentials. I think there's actually a reason for that because I've had the luxury, you know, it wasn't a luxury at the time, but I've had the luxury now of having over 20 years not having the biblical worldview or the, the ancient worldview in my head. I mean, I, I was where all these, you know, so many other people are, you know, for, for 20 years. And so, but I, I was thinking about lots of things and there were, I've had a few watershed moments that sort of put me into that. Okay. You need to think about it totally differently now. So over the course of 20 years, I know what the academic arguments are for, for basically any you know, any of the major, you know, what, what I call the divine council worldview or the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. I know what, what the questions are. I know what the passages are. I know who, who says what about them. I mean, I've, I've lived in that turf for 20 years, you know, and I, and I know what the, the weaknesses of, again, the alternative viewpoints are, and I know why I've landed where I've landed. You know, I've, I've, I've been over that turf a hundred times. Okay. I'm not going to get surprised by anything there, but that's academic land. Okay. And so when you have a conversation with someone who doesn't live in academic land and they're not, they're not, they're not worried about, again, the standard set of talking points about a topic or a passage, they ask you something that's completely from, from some other point of orientation. Okay. I haven't thought about that. You know, that's really a good question. And, And I know it matters because I've thought about so much of this other stuff, but I haven't come across that one. And that's really important. So then, you know, then you just have to go back and tear it apart, put it back together again. And sure enough, you know, I've, I've had a number of occasions where, boy, am I glad I had that conversation. That reminds me of all things of playing ultimate Frisbee, because sometimes we'll have <laughs> new people come out who don't know how to play at all. They mm-hmm. don't understand the language of body movements that you're supposed to use. So they do surprising things, which sometimes are successful (laughs) and beat the more experienced people. So everybody out there in podcast listening land, whether you are looking for biblical literacy or are looking to induce it in others, here is an encouragement for you that there is more to be found, Mm -hmm. that scholars out there who've studied this for 20 years can learn something from lay people who've just dug into their Bibles and are thoughtful and are asking questions. That's encouraging. And there are riches out there that I know Mike Kaiser and I both would encourage you Mm -hmm. to go out and find. Mike Kaiser, thank you for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've pulled together all four of our academic editors at Lexham Press to discuss Mike Kaiser's interview that you just listened to. I'm your host, Mark Ward, PhD in New Testament from Bob Jones Seminary. We've got Doug Mangum, who's got a PhD in Biblical Hebrew from? University of the Free State. We've got Derek Brown with a PhD in New Testament from? University of Edinburgh. And Todd Haynes, PhD ABD in Historical Theology from? Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So let's jump right in. Heiser said that understanding the ancient worldview 
should play as much of a role as it possibly can in the Bible reading, even of a beginner. Tell me when you think this ancient worldview should come into the life of someone seeking to achieve biblical literacy. I guess this is one of those things that I think about biblical literacy is the tools and the toolbox that we have. And so when I think of, I guess I'm prefacing some things here, but what I was thinking is what Mike is clearly reacting to, where he responds to this stuff about like dictation theory and that kind of thing. That's just not my experience. I've heard a lot of that kind of stuff. Usually I hear that from people that don't go to church and don't read the Bible and aren't Christians, that they think those kind of things. So that's like, um, I would think of that in a very different case. But with a beginner Bible reader, I would want them to have the big story first. I want them to know who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. So I'm not going to explain to my son, who's very small, he's two and a half, ancient worldview stuff. But that said, there's still things in our culture that are going to have similarities. So I see it as one of when you introduce the ancient worldview, it's a difference of degree. It's not like a full on, full off. But I think it's still most important for early Bible readers to know the full story of the Bible and what the core of the Bible is about. And if, if they go in and can tell you who this Genesis, what Genesis 6 is about, but they can't tell you how the Torah has to do with Jesus or that that's the question that they're looking for. I think it, they've strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. Yeah. They've looked at the tiny elements that aren't as significant. Now, Heiser didn't disagree with that. He said, you got to have the framework. And I assume part of this is your gifting. Um, your answer relies on the things that you value. And he's been called to something of a different value. I found your answer helpful, however, and I would say the same thing. You got to get the story first. Um, I heard Heiser say that the biblical writers had a purpose when they wrote something down and that their purposes both challenged ancient worldviews and at times assumed them. So let's, let's think about Paul and James and Peter. Where do you discern the biblical writers assuming ancient worldviews and where do you see them challenging ancient worldviews? Ooh, great question. I think for Paul, he is coming into uh, a context going out into the ancient Mediterranean world that the worldview is so radically different. You're talking about a primarily a, a Jew going out into the ancient Mediterranean world where they are polytheistic, believe in many gods, and they do probably have never even heard of Jesus. Um, but it goes bigger than that. You have the ancient Roman Empire um, in control. And I think Paul has to challenge that. He has to go and engage that. And I mean, you see this in the Areopagus when he has to speak to those people. Acts 17. Yeah. And I think that's a big point. For, for Paul. Acts 17 was the first passage that my mind went to as well, where you see this direct cultural clash. Um, the Old Testament, where do you see the writers assuming ancient worldviews? Where do you see them challenging ancient worldviews, generally speaking? Kind of on the same page with Mike and that I see them, Old Testament or the ancient worldview sort of permeates everything that they say. And it's hard to separate it out when it's like overt and active and when it's more just subtle thing. I think the places where it's explicit that they're challenging it are the um, Isaiah 46 and places where uh, Isaiah is sort of mocking idolatry, saying, bring forth Baal and Nebo. And the things where it talks about, oh, you just made that thing out of wood with your hands and now you're praying to it. What an idiot. Those cases are places where it is explicit in that it's um, challenging the worldview. Um, a lot of what Mike's written about Deuteronomy 32 worldview, that sort of thing, it 
he pulls out the places where it's subtle. And so I think that's um, one of the more important things of, of his work is that we see that it's not just in places like that, that the biblical writers are poking at worldviews from others. And, and if you read the uh, historical books in the Old Testament, you can see all of that tension between, are you worshiping Yahweh? Are you worshiping Baal and Asherah? And that's all wrapped up in this of like, are you following the path that Yahweh wants for you to worship Yahweh alone? Or are you deviating from it in various ways? And all of the stuff in the Old Testament about trying to pull Israel back to worship of Yahweh, I would see is pushing against this ancient worldview saying like, no, you don't have to worship Baal to make sure your harvests are good or things like that. Yahweh's got you covered. You actually edited Heiser's work for Lexham Press, isn't that right? Yes, I've edited uh, Bible Unfiltered, um, Angels, and the forthcoming Demons. So I wonder, as a Hebrew Bible guy yourself, Doug, what were the one or two insights into Bible interpretation that you got from Heiser that were most helpful for you? I, think, I mean, coming to Heiser's work was my first exposure to his, like what he describes as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. I hadn't really ever attempted to look at scripture or even pull, I wouldn't have made those connections that, that he makes. And once he, once you see the connections, you can't like unsee it and you're like, Oh wait, that these do appear linked in ways that I would have never thought of before unless somebody pointed it out to me. So just that, I guess the whole lens of looking at the old Testament story through that kind of tension between the supernatural of the gods that have rebelled against Yahweh and then the people that God has kept for himself. You know, that tension is probably the most important thing. You use the word lenses to describe um, a, a set of assumptions that we bring to scripture. And I would say that we all have those assumptions created by whatever traditions we're a part of. And that's true of Christians and actually of non-Christians. I wanted to ask, when Heiser said, we don't shut the traditions off, he said he saw particular value in the church fathers, which is actually the topic of another episode of the BSM podcast. But how often should we be telling people to defer to tradition in their Bible interpretation? And how often should they try to read fresh? Because Heiser's trying, he says everything he says is elsewhere. He doesn't come up with any new ideas, but I've repeatedly heard people say what you just said, Doug, that um, he is providing a new lens, something you can't unsee once you see it. How do we balance these values? Um, sorry, I'm still thinking about the, the first question too. And I, I just want to say, I mean, that's where there's this, this toolbox of faith and of reason. And faith is both an objective thing, that it's a set of things that we believe, which the ancient church has always affirmed as the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer. But then there are also reasoned pieces that we use to understand the Bible. So that's where things like grammar and worldview, literary, all of these things are tools. And the way that the church has talked about that relationship is that those tools are servants, not masters. So they must always rely under the kingship of faith. And that's what I'm getting at. So I, I hope that I didn't sound overly dismissive of Mike. That's not my intention. And that's where um, I think, for example, when he sets this up sort of with the tradition thing and say with creed, versus a supernatural worldview, I wouldn't say that that's, that's, a, that's not a tension. The Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer assume a thoroughly supernatural worldview. They're not necessarily giving you all sorts of details, but it's interesting to go and look at like Luther, for example, 
He's my specialty. Somehow I knew you would bring up Luther, Todd. Uh, well, I have an example of resources that's not a Luther thing for later, but... Um, I don't believe it. <laughs> Sebastian Munster. But uh, Luther will say, well, what, what should we think about angels and demons? Well, according to the Ten Commandments. And then he'll go through sort of the first table of the Ten Commandments about, you know, that God alone is Lord, that we obey his word, that we don't create idols, etc. So he's filtering that through what we listen to. That's one kind of big question I have about Deuteronomy 32 worldview and even Heiser's whole ancient worldview thing is how much does it actually change or affect what we believe? Like the big theological story of scripture. Because to me, it seems like, yeah, that's an interesting new way of looking at it and helps put together some of the ancient pieces of the Bible, make sense of them better, but didn't, doesn't change the end of the story. So we're not trying to unsell Mike Heiser's books or Lexham press. Um, and it's fun to see this new lens, but it's also reassuring I, I hear both things from people. Yes, I'm seeing new things through Heiser's work, but I'm able to fit them in with what I've already believed. This is this is drawing together what the Bible is doing. Yeah. I think that's what Mike would say too, is that the whole theological tradition of the church still works and that he's not trying to overturn it or anything. He's just trying to help people you know, make sense of some of the tricky, bizarre, weird things sections of the Bible where these fit once you put these pieces together. The sections of the Bible that we maybe all tended to skip when we first encountered them, thinking, oh, I never heard my pastor talk about this, so I'm just going to table this for a while. Um, Heiser said that there's a lot that needs to be done to rethink scripture. That's a direct quote, uh, according to this basic insight that they are not us and we are not them. Heiser thinks there are more things to find. You agree with that? I think so. On a, on a certain level, that the nature of scripture is that it's inexhaustible. It's God's word. And the way it plays out and could be read over and over again is largely because I think every time we come to scripture, we're at a different point. I remember times studying where you're reading the same passage on a daily basis and you read it one day and you come back to it the next day. And I want to say it's you know drastically different or you read it in a whole different way, but you're in a different place. And maybe you read something else or had a conversation with someone and you see it differently. And so it is inexhaustible in that way. Now, I don't think we're going to, you know, short of discovering some magical manuscript that un un unveils something we've never um, known before. I don't think we're going to find something radical that actually does change the whole story and the, the you know, the, the understanding or the you know, foundations of doctrine. But it is about more about the reader coming and being changed and finding how we engage with scripture. There's a big component that didn't really come up in the podcast, but I know Mike has a lot of great thoughts about this isn't just about knowledge and understanding the worldview. Um, what is the toolbox for ultimately our relationship to Christ? And adjusting our worldview to fit his. Absolutely. It's a matter of submission and, and knowing Christ and being known by him. For me, scripture is such an important um, conduit for, for that process. Um, and I, mean, I think worldview, ancient worldview absolutely plays a big part in that. Um, God was engaging with people for thousands of years in a worldview that just, it really is at the end of the day, different than ours, post-enlightenment and very different. And, and at the same time, I would push back and say, we're still humans. Well, and at the same time, the Bible, uh, there's, um, I think it's Andrew Walls that says this somewhere in Scotland, he's some missions fellow. And he talks about how the gospel challenges and corrects every culture that it meets. Right. I think that's true of God's word, period. And so that's where, um, <laughs> let's see, I'll use another Luther example. Um, I'm shocked, shocked. I know, I know. 
So Luther, when he preaches on, on Christmas, on Luke 2, and Luke's use of Isaiah 9, he will say things like, Isaiah would actually be surprised by this use of his own words if he's not motivated by the Holy Spirit, if he's not seeing this through the Holy Spirit. So that's how <laughs> radical Luther's view of the Holy Spirit's authorship of Scripture is, to the extent that there are things even for the authors themselves to learn that they had no idea of. And he'll say the same thing of Jonah when Jesus uses Jonah as an example for his death and resurrection, that this isn't something that Jonah necessarily had in mind um, and that that's okay. And that's wonderful. When we think about the biblical writers, their audience shared a different worldview, but also that was a worldview of polytheism and some pretty gruesome stuff about the way that you treat your children, you know, with like child sacrifice, that sort of thing that, they, they don't actually share a worldview with the biblical authors, that the biblical authors are trying to push them. And when we look at archaeological evidence, we find out, well, yeah, these people were polytheistic as all get out. They're not obeying the first commandment at all. That goes back to my first question. We want to know as we read the Bible, where are we possibly misunderstanding something the Bible writers are telling us because we don't accurately perceive what their worldview is? And yet we all recognize that the great majority of people around the Hebrews we're not sharing their worldview and that from Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament, the same is true of the New, uh, God's word is challenging people who are in rebellion against him, who are suppressing the truth that he's revealed in creation. I've enjoyed this discussion. I am eager to get more into what Heiser is saying myself. The one thing that he's always come out to me is what you said, Doug, that he's drawing together insights from these passages of scripture that we tend to ignore. And I think our discussion has showed that from our various fields, historical theology, Old Testament, New Testament, we can all be appreciative of this uh, basic approach, looking at the Bible and making sure, in such a way that we're making sure we understand where the biblical writers are coming from. God used the scandal of particularity. Thank you, Doug, Derek, and Todd for coming on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Support for the Bible Study Magazine podcast comes from Logos Bible Software. Start a better, deeper Bible study experience with Logos 8 Fundamentals. Explore scripture more thoroughly than you ever imagined with Factbook, an encyclopedia of biblical places, people, and events. Workflows that walk you step-by-step -step through your Bible study. Notes and highlights. Powerful and integrated note-taking capabilities for insights, ideas, and questions available in your Logos digital library, and much more. Learn more about Logos 8 Fundamentals and how it will transform your Bible study at logos.com slash fundamentals. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. The average listener of our podcast reports a jump in biblical literacy of 8% per episode. We hope you've had the same experience. Our producer is Kaylee Joyce. Our audio technicians are Brandon Van Beek and Jack Underwood. And I am your host, Mark Ward. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow.